Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. Uh, for all of you joining the first time, welcome. And uh, for those that are returning again, I appreciate you supporting these sessions. Um, the room flow after our intros, I'm going to ask uh, John some thoughts, uh, get his thoughts on some topics, and uh, then we're going to be inviting founders up to ask John or I a question. Uh, for those of you don't, that don't know my journey, I grew up with a poor single mom. I left school at 13 to start working. I wasn't educated about health when I was young, and I fell prey to fast food and found myself weighing 300 pounds. I started my 100-pound weight loss journey at 18, and, and uh, which led me to the health food business uh, at 21. And our claim to fame at Manitoba Harvest was uh, helping to pioneer the hemp food industry. And we grew that business to $100 million in sales. And in 2020, Manitoba Harvest passed $500 million in lifetime sales uh, with over 16,000 retail partners and millions of happy hemp heart customers. Uh, and we were very fortunate to, uh, to sell the business uh, twice, and the majority in 2015 to private equity, and then a full sale in 2019 to Tilray for $419 million dollars. And now I spend my time helping other uh, natural product founders to achieve their mission through investment, advisement, mentoring, and board governance. And I'm active on LinkedIn. If we are, aren't connected there, you can connect with me. So I'm super excited to have this chat with, uh, with John uh, and you all. Uh, I've known of John and known John for a long time. We, and uh, we met through uh, at Expo West and, uh, and got uh, reconnected, connected on LinkedIn. Uh, John is a legend in the natural products industry. Um, it's really remarkable what he built at Annie's, uh, growing the business to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales, taking the company public and ultimately selling it to General Mills for $800 million. And I think even more impactful staying on at General Mills and, and making a change in the uh, in the food system with big, uh, big CPG. Um, it's really leaders like John that encouraged me to be a better leader and see what's really possible in our industry. And uh, uh, a small story, but you know, when Expo West was canceled last year, I got super bummed because I love trade shows and connecting with people there. And one of John's LinkedIn posts inspired me to, it was about reaching out and, and, uh, and giving 10 natural product founders 30 minutes of time and, and mentorship. Uh, and I took John up on that challenge and have really doubled down and tripled down on it. And, uh, and it's events like this that are kind of uh, started with that uh, leadership mindset. So um, it is truly leaders like John in our industry that make a world a better place. So John, welcome to Natural Product Founders, Helping Founders. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you want to start and give us a, a, an intro on you and, uh, and Once Upon a Farm? Sure, sure. So <clears throat> I've been in this space since... Um, my first company was in 1994. Um, I helped start it between first and second year of business school um, when I was in Berkeley and learned a ton in that um, and grew. That led me to uh, the Annie's business, which I found in um, 1998, 1999. That was the existing company that had been around for a while, um, uh, founded back on the East Coast, had some great people in it. It was really small, it was undercapitalized, and they were looking to raise some capital. So I helped them raise some capital and um, put together a group that invested for a control position in it. And then just naturally, it kind of just happened. I ended up running that business not that many years later and moved it to California and um, 
went on a long journey. You know, everybody always talks about like the success of a company. They see the headlines of like, you know, who bought it or how big it got or whatever. What, what most people, entrepreneurs, maybe aside, don't understand is how long and hard it is to get there. We went through a lot of battles and struggles through the OOs, almost went broke a couple of times it felt like, and just, just figuring out how to like make the business really work. And so that long journey um, led me to selling the business to Mills. And as you mentioned, took it public. That was an interesting chapter. And then in 2017, I joined um, with two uh, founders that are awesome folks and, and entrepreneurs down in San Diego, Ari Roz and Cassandra Curtis. And they had started um, Once Upon a Farm. Uh, actually, they started uh, sep separately started their own little baby food companies. And Cassandra's first brand was called Mother's Garden. And they decided to get together, pool their resources and efforts. And they rebranded and it became Once Upon a Farm. And I had been looking since 2014 to invest in the fresh baby space in the U.S. because I just felt like it was a huge white space opportunity that no one was addressing. Having been um, a public company, a bunch of my buddies that I was touring the country with talking to institutional investors were the folks at Fresh Pet, and I watched what they did in the pet aisle, which has been pretty transformative, and it was amazing that no one had done something similar in baby. And so um, I invested as soon as I possibly could, literally like a day and a half after seeing the deck, um, and helped um, Ari and Cassandra on their early, early steps. And then um, in 2017, Ari called me up and said, hey, Jen Garner's manager uh, reached out. They're interested in talking to you. They see you're an investor and, and advisor in this business, and they want to know why. They're interested in it. Jen had been looking to do something in the food space for over 10 years that leveraged her real interest in uh, food and also um, something mission and purpose driven. She has a very strong background in, um, you know, dealing with issues uh, facing families and children in poverty in the U.S. and uh, through her work with Save the Children. And so, so we met. We had a, a kind of a legendary meeting that went really long, and we just totally hit it off. And we just said, we got to do something together. What is it going to be? And turned out that we decided. Um, to do, do it together and come in here and Ari and Cassandra welcomed us in and we moved the business up to Berkeley in late 2017 and it's just been a crazy ride ever since. And what we're doing is um, we really started out as Fresh Baby. We really broadened it out to, to talk about it as Fresh Kid Nutrition and um, we're in about 10,000 stores in the U.S. and um, mostly in the in yogurt sets or in produce sets and um, doing doing exceptionally well, and um, we just rebranded the, the or like improved the branding a couple times, and just have gone through the early stage entrepreneur stuff um, again, which is really fun to do over again. The product market fit, and really building the supply chain out, getting the right people in, figuring things out. It's been a real learning journey. So I'm excited to be. Uh, here with all of you and, and many of you entrepreneurs out there again, and we can share stories and feel each other's pain because it's not easy. <laughs> so, but that's, that's the quick backdrop. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. And, uh, and just the plug for all the Canadian friends, because I know Once Upon a Farm is, uh, is uh, available in Canada now too, and um, uh, have, you know, the, the distribution is growing, so can uh, can see that. 
yep. you know, but when you time you left, like, you know, you were, you were running at, uh, at Annie's and, and maybe through the general mills operating like hundreds of millions of dollars of business. And then, and then to, to get back in, I'm sure, you know, you could, you could have taken different paths of, of just being an investor or, or, you know, the board member, some of the other things that you do, but jumping back into the CEO seat, um, and at a startup level, are you, are you feel like you're, you're, you're destined to be a CEO and in that leadership role? Like what, what, what drove the serial entrepreneurship, uh, uh, again for you? Yeah. You know, um, I can analyze myself many times to figure that out, especially on days when things haven't gone well. <laughs> Being an entrepreneur, especially in the early stages, is just one of the most challenging personal tests you can have. Um, it challenges your your physical, your mental, your EQ. Um, it really stretches you. And and I did have I, I I laughed about it as I was leaving and. Too. I had I had the best job in the food industry um, at Annie's and, and especially at General Mills at Annie's because um, I had not just Annie's but a lot of other really great brands in the natural organic food space and Mills um, in doing some amazing things um, to really leverage the things they learned from Annie's across their broad portfolio in regenerative agriculture and organic. It's just really a, a crazy awesome high impact place to be and there, but there's something about the challenge of going in and doing it again. I, this is going to sound maybe kind of odd to people, but you know, when, when, when people tell me or, or they comment just in, in introductions or in um, things that they write or say about my experiences, like they're like how successful it's been. And, how successful Annie's was and, and all that. And, and they're, they're, they're right. I think by like, you know, most metrics, but, you know, having been on the inside of it that whole time and knowing all the mistakes I made, the things I learned, um, the things I think that we could have done differently, I think it could have been so much bigger and so much even better. And so there was, I always had that like gnawing feeling that like, man, I was a first time, in a scaling, I learned the way a lot of you were learning or have learned. And, and I thought, what if I could do that again? What if I had the opportunity to do that again? Wouldn't that be a fun personal challenge? And so that was a big motivator for me. It was, you know, um, obviously down the road, if this works out well, it'll work out well financially for me. But in terms of like, you know, near term comp or other things I could have done, it was nothing compared to any of that. It was more the personal challenge, and that's what drew drew me to it. And I also felt like, you know, there's such an there's such a great uh, ethos of paying it forward and driving positive social change that is in this industry that's always been super appealing to me. And I've felt like I had a lot of experience that I could maybe bring to an early stage company that could help others. And so it just felt like a great platform to try to do that. And, um, so that's what got me back here. And I appreciate that. You mentioned it on the intro, but you know, the, the multiple co-founders of once upon a farm, um, has it been all positive or I guess, you know, learnings, um, uh, that, that would be beneficial as other uh, kind of founders are deciding, is it a solo venture or is it, is it, is it, is it co-founders that are going to be best for that, for their business start? Can you, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that everybody, you know, every situation's different. Every person's different and everyone brings something unique. And in our case, I felt like we had really a, a unique combination. You know, we had Cassandra, who's just an amazing product genius and really developed these products to solve her own problems, which is the classic entrepreneur, you know, way things get created. And then you had Ari, who was just a classic entrepreneur. He's just super scrappy. He's optimistic, smart, um, hardworking, um, really like carrying, carrying the bag for this business. And then, and then you had, you know, me coming in with a lot of experience and, um, I'd say I'm probably more of a sales marketing person than I am a fan finance ops person, but I've had experience in all those areas. Um, and then Jen, you had this unique, um, uh, co-founder too, who had, just this incredible deep passion and act that she wanted to bring to this brand um, and the involvement, you know, she's not an endorser. She's not a influencer or whatever. She's literally like on my management team calls twice a week. We've been in dozens of offices all over the country. We're emailing each other about fill rates at 10 o'clock at night on Thursdays. Like, so she's deeply there. And so the combination of all four of us, we've all kind of found our groove, you know, and each, each playing a unique um, and important role in the business. And then obviously as the company has gotten bigger and as we've um, had to bring in people to help us really set this business up to scale, we've brought in and a lot of professional folks too, that have had experience that I've worked with before or that have worked in the industry or in similar situations. And so, it's, it's fun. I always say like, you know, when people ask me about like co the co-founder question, I'm a big supporter of the idea versus like a single entrepreneur. I think it's very, very helpful to have at least one other person that's in the battle and in the trenches with you in the beginning, especially because there's so much to do. Just be thoughtful about who those people are and, and communicate the business that you think you want to spend the most time on and divide and conquer. And I think if it's done well, I think it can be very powerful and obviously it can go bad too, but I've fortunately I've never had that experience, but I've seen it. So it's something to watch out for. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, you know, I know that, you know, Manitoba Harvest, we had three co-founders and, uh, and it was definitely a, um, we needed all hands on deck and divide and conquer. And I, I'm not sure that, uh, we would have created the success we had if we didn't, if we didn't have that, um, the sweat equity for sure, right off the bat and the passion of all, all three weighing in. Yeah. And um, on supply chain, you know, Annie's and and Once Upon a Farm were all uh, co-packed products, or were you guys doing? Yeah, any? for the for the for the most part at Annie's, we were co-packed. We did end up buying a manufacturing plant um, in the later years of bakery down in Joplin, Missouri. Um, but for the most part, it was um, a supply chain that relied on contract manufacturers. But we really thought of it a little bit differently than that. We, we kind of considered it a hybrid model because very often we would either own equipment um, in the plant or we would have our own separate room in the plant or we would have a protected line um, so that when the business scaled, first of all, it gave us more control over how the business grew and the quality level at, at which the plant was operating with. Um, and it gave us the ability to really scale margins as the business grew. You know, when Annie's went, um, it surprised people, I think, how good our margin profiles were relative to the peers set, including, you know, vastly bigger companies. And 
a big part of that was the incredible work on the supply chain side that was done by many people, but um, notably a guy named Larry Waldman, who I still work with today. He's my COO and COO over CFO and COO over here at Once Upon a Farm. He just built an amazing supply chain there. And um, we've taken a lot of those same lessons and are doing the same thing here so that we can position ourselves well to drive a really great business model. Yeah, that uh, sounds very strategic. I, I'm, you know, I've always been in manufacturing, so I'm, I'm pretty bullish on own manufacturing, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not for every category. And I think, um, I think th- those are some um, in, in interesting insights on uh, on the blended. Uh, you know, trying to own as much as you can a co-packer or their time or space, and uh, and so you can you can protect it uh, a little bit more than just being a uh, just being a straight uh, customer of theirs. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, uh, John, how do you think about, um, um, innovation, um, you know, from your learnings at, at, at Annie's and, and through once upon a farm, how's that, how's the innovation cycle or the mindset, uh, how do you encourage that in the business? Um, you know, philosophically, I think that innovation is, um, you start with like the best ideas can come from anywhere. Um, and then you've got to root you know, root that in real empathy and understanding for the the, the, the the challenges that your consumers are facing and really being an ally there and trying to help them. You know, early, early on in my career, it's interesting. Um, in that first business that I was involved with, um, it was called Napa Valley Kitchens. It started in like 1993, 1994. And, and I remember we developed a lot of products and there was a chef that was involved who was a creative genius and um i was doing most of the selling to places like william sonoma and neiman marcus dayton hudson um the early pieces that became whole foods the fresh fields and um and all and all and all those stuff um and i remember when we would develop products it was very much like gut it was like we know you know we have this like point of view on food and we're going to develop these products and they're going to be great. And I remember being candidly a little bit arrogant about it. Like we knew better and that's, that's what it was. And I think that that's one of the risks that a lot of early founders have is that they perceive their own instincts about what they should be doing um, as the right thing rather than balancing that. Obviously there's something to that, but also balancing that with really, deep insights that you can get from your consumers, you know, in simple ways, like standing in front of a, you know, a whole foods, well, you can't do this now, but back when we were working, developing cheddar bunnies at Annie's, like we literally popped up a, a table out in the front of a whole foods with a bowl full of cheddar bunnies and had people just stick their hand in and tell us what they thought. And, and just, just really understanding, you know, do they like the flavor? Is this a, a neat state that's good for them? So I'd say it's, it's really rooted in really rooted in really deeply understanding your company, um, their, their customers and their needs and trying to solve those. And then, and then just building um, processes around that as you get bigger, you know, we, there's this thing in big companies called stage gates, which are basically kind of a formal process for things to kind of move along. And we had, we had versions of that at Annie's. We tried to dumb it down a little bit so that it was still very agile, but at least gave us a little bit of control um, invisibility to make sure that we were kind of organizing our efforts right, and um, and then just being thoughtful about where you want to innovate and how, and you know, don't get so um, 
don't get so caught up in like the biggest fanciest idea. Sometimes the greatest innovation comes from the simplest insight. <laughs> you know, like I was walking around um, in a Whole Foods about six months ago and I came, I was walking through the produce section and there was this um, manufacturer that had put lemons and limes into one bag and like branded it as lemons and limes. Right. And th that to me is a perfect example of like just duh innovation that is really simple, but you know, we often are always thinking about things so much more complex than that. So I always like to think of it that way and um, get people excited about it. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, and uh, we initiated a stage gate process at Manitoba Harvest, I think, after my epic failure of developing a hemp heart bar um, that, I th <laughs> that, that I thought that, uh, you know, people, you know, so, such a purist that I thought it had to be 90% hemp hearts and, uh, and uh, simple ingredients. And it just didn't work. And we spent a lot of money and effort on that and then, and then realized, you know, that stage gate and getting consumers and our customers involved in the process uh uh, very, very, very helpful. So even on a small scale, anyone, uh, anyone that's just even starting out to, uh, to formalize it in that way, because you can easily send kind of newsletters out or, or, or questionnaires or just talk to, uh, talk to a group to make sure that, uh, what you're developing is not, you know, uh, too internal. Um, and, uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. External facing really building that empathy and, you know, the, the technology and the tools and DTC opportunities that are available to do that now are just a hundred times better than they were when I started working at Annie's. And so it's really easy to do it now and it doesn't cost very much. If you, you know, just, just think basic and scrappy, you can, you can learn a ton from your consumers and really should as a core competency of your business be, you know, the, the primary driver of where that insight comes from and be thinking about, the touch points with consumers all along the way to constantly be getting and asking those questions so that you can really be in tune with what they're looking for. Yeah. Here, here. Love your thoughts on, um, organic and, and, uh, you know, I know that, um, uh, Annie's, you guys had products that were natural and, and organic. I think more of the, 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 uh, more of the product went to, uh, to organic, but you know, your, your personal thoughts on, on, on organic and, and environmental responsibility. Uh, can, you, mm -hmm. can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I'm a big proponent of organic and, and have always have been just to, just for the removal of the toxic pesticides and other stuff that I just don't think we need in our foods. And when, when Annie started, it was, you know, quote unquote natural. I mean, it was basically just, you know, non, non-organic. This is back in um, 1989. And they introduced right about the time that um, I came in with a group and we invested in there. Paul, who had been doing a great job running this business, uh, decided he wanted to launch some organic products. This is before the USDA standards were fully like vetted out and approved in 2002. But he he developed a line of organic mac and cheese items, basically the same flavor, but organic um, and positioned them at a little higher price point. And it was, it was a really a brilliant idea. And that was the first organic product that we did. And then, and then, you know, in the mid OOs, as we really tightened up our mission and purpose and focus on um, sustainability and driving, you know, positive environmental social impact, we really, really pushed hard at organic. And the, the biggest flip we made was we took all of the products that were basically um, our biggest business, which was basically natural mac and cheese, quote unquote, natural mac and cheese. Um, 
And um, we upgraded all the pasta in it to certified organic, which was a crazy, um, a crazy leap. In hindsight, it was like really risky and stupid. <laughs> like it worked out, but it cost us a million dollars a year that we didn't price up for really. Um, and it exp- and it put the supply chain in a place where I would I didn't really realize it at the time. I was naive, I think, about like like how bad that could go with a with a crop a really bad crop or whatever because it was a pretty limited market for and and grower base for organic um wheat at the time but it ended up working out and we ended up building a really big business there and then the basic bottom line for annie's always was we always wanted to do organic and we mostly did um with some rare exceptions there was a time when for example we wanted to do a gluten-free product, but if we did gluten-free and organic, it was going to cost like $8 a box. And so we we settled on gluten-free for that specific product for a while. I think it might even be organic now, but but um, but that was that was what we knew our consumers wanted and cared about, and and we talked a lot about that. And uh, from an activism standpoint, in that time frame. You know, Annie's was very involved in the the GMO, you know, right to, you know, basically labeling, you know, labeling law uh, fights in many of the states. And it was something that we really felt strongly about, that consumers had the right to know whether the food they're eating was genetically modified. Um, if they if they knew it and wanted to eat it, then all power to them. But we wanted to make it clear that it had to be labeled. And so that was that became like a like organic driving that to scale working with farmers to like broaden our base and to do creative things to get farmers to think of multi-year commitments and things like that which were really hard and unusual at the time um, combined with the social activism and stuff that we were doing um, in the GMO um, labeling area were, were two like fundamental things that really helped us build the brand and and what we stood for through that decade. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you know, big believer in and uh, and be the change that we wish to see, and uh, you know, in- incubating and then and then uh, putting a large uh, organic brand uh, like Annie's into General Mills, uh, you know, has has changed. I've seen some of the General Mills campaigns around uh, uh, regenerative and sustainable agriculture and trying to, uh, yep. I think, a million acre kind of target and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and some people think that uh, you know. Um, uh, big food can't change, but I think I, I'm a believer that we got to give them the path uh, to do it um, and uh, and and make it kind of easier, so to speak. So, uh, right on for you yeah. for the work I, done there. Yeah, I completely agree, and um, that's how you know. I mean, we can all do really interesting, cool, cute stuff for the environment, but like unless it can scale to size where it actually makes a difference, like what's the point? Like that's always been my view. So, um, I think getting you know, having a consumer-driven movement that that's pushing uh, companies and manufacturers in the direction of better practices and better farming and all that is really part of a big continuum toward tackling the challenges we have in the world that we all have to commit to, and that you know, most I'm sure people on this call are, and the vast majority of people in our industry are. Besides your uh, your day job, uh, you're also an active investor in uh, in in the natural products industry. Um, Mm-hmm. What do you look for in 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 founders or, or products that are that are an investment fit for you? It's interesting. It's evolved over time. It's just like anything. 
whether it's, you know, learning to drive or being an entrepreneur or whatever, like better it, the more you do it and the longer you do it. I think when I was first making investments, um, I was more about the product and, um, you know, is there a, can I see this being a big product idea or do I love the taste of it or is the packaging really unique or something like that? And what I've learned through trial and error is that like, that's in, it's certainly important, but, but what's far, far more important is the, the entrepreneur involved and, you know, the DNA, the way they think, um, how, how they respond and deal with adversity. So, so I'm more likely to, to back a, a great entrepreneur with an average idea than, than a great product with an average entrepreneur. And, um, and I also invested probably in a lot of earliest early, like even seed or pre-rev stage stuff early on. I do a little less of that now. Like, it's not that I won't do it. I did that with, um, with uh, Ibrahim from A Dozen Cousins, who's amazing entrepreneurs. I just had the pleasure of watching Blossom um, just because he had such amazing capabilities and um, a great idea together. Um, but most of the time I look for stuff that's um, kind of proven product market fit. Like it's probably over a million in revenue on its way to five, you know, about to go into that wasteland of trying to get from five to 25, which is really hard. It's not quite as hard as going from zero to one, but it's really hard, different challenges. Um, and then I try to get involved in situations where my experience can can help and also not just become a full-time job for me because I've got way too much stuff going on as it is. So those are the things I think about. And then positive, you know, really something consumers can be passionate about and also things that can have a positive impact in society in some way. I love it. More betting on the jockey uh, more than the, uh, than the horse. I, I, uh, yep. I'm thinking about that uh, more myself nowadays and uh, and also on the on the stage, you know, I, uh, stage of company. I, I didn't grow up yep. with any money. So um, any money that I invest in other uh, entrepreneurs um, want to, you know, I get concerned about it if uh, if the business uh, is going to fail. And, and that's uh, that could be stressful where I think you got to get to a, a certain size where, you know, it's um, I don't know if it's any easier, but maybe uh, a, a little bit more. There's a little bit more strategy, a little more governance, and uh, and likelihood that the uh, that the business is going to be a success. Yeah, for sure. These are high risk enterprises. You know, what I mean, like like startups are high risk no matter what industry, and they're very high risk in this industry. So you just have to know that going in and and um, place your bets in the right places. So, anything else you want to uh, talk about before maybe we get to uh, see if some questions from the uh, from the audience? Um, I'll just do a shameless plug for our, our, our brand and product. We just, we just did an, um, an upgrade to our, our packaging and branding, which has been really well received and is really driving blossoms through the roof. It's kind of crazy. You know, I never, I had, um, I, we did a lot of packaging work at, at Annie's over many, many years. Obviously I never really had a packaging change that, um, I did that just, just caused a like straight up to the right on an already growing trend kind of thing. And that's kind of what's happening in my business right now. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, but not totally understanding it. But, but I think, um, you know, anybody who um, has tried our products is out there, take a look and, and let me know what you think um, when you, when you see it on shelf. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I've, I've, 
I've learned a lot about uh, subtle packaging changes in the in the message and and how that uh, uh, and how that can impact velocity. I mean, we we did obviously a major change when we created hemp hearts and we we watched the uh, velocity mm-hmm. go like five x uh, overnight. And uh, but I've seen great brands, uh, you know, like a uh, like Claffia Farms. I think does it well. They kept on kept on tuning up their packaging and and uh, and it just grabs. You, know, you can grab a consumer's con- attention or. Or keep them as a more loyal uh, customer, and, um, and and maybe a lot of younger founders don't uh, don't think like that before they order a mass amount of packaging or, or get too locked into yep. uh, into their brand or messaging. Yeah, I think I think a lesson, uh, just a quick lesson that I learned over time, and that, that um, just continues being reinforced in what I see. Like these th- these small early stage brands, and I consider us still small early stage brands, although we're not that small anymore. Is like they're rolling experiments, but you have to think of them that way there. You try stuff, you test stuff, you take two steps forward, you take a step back. It's like you look at your packaging and you may be in love with it. In fact, most entrepreneurs are in love with their packaging. (laughs) Um, I'm in love with mine, but I know it's not done yet. I know it's going to continue to evolve. And, um, and that's, that's the way to approach it. And um, that's where the growth comes from. And so if you're an early stage entrepreneur and you've got this, what you think is the world's greatest packaging out there right now, I can guarantee you it can be better. <laughs> know how good it is. It's, it can be better. Um, and it will need to be better as you grow the business and start approaching different kinds of consumers in different places. So anyway, it's just a journey of experimentation and learning that makes this industry so fun. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, but it, it, yeah. Much different communication needed if you're selling in a in a Whole Foods to a super core customer than if you get into a you know one of the divisions in in Kroger and in in, uh, in totally. a little different place in uh, in the U.S. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show please by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fada. That's it for now. See you next time.